Today's episode is such a gift. I'm sharing my conversation with author Kristen Lavallee. You may know her from Instagram or from some of her beautiful writing over on Substack. Today, we're sitting down to talk about her upcoming book, Even If He Doesn't, What We Believe About God When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Y'all, Kristen has a refreshing perspective on faith and spirituality. You're going to hear that in the way that she tells her story. She talks about doubt and belief, hope and suffering, beauty and heartache, and all of this is through the lens of looking backward on what God has done in her life. Kristen lives in Massachusetts with her husband, Zach, and their five children. She's a fellow twin mom, and you're going to hear her tell that story as well. So thanks for tuning in, and let's get started. Welcome to We Have This Hope. I'm Emily Curzon, and this is a podcast about the art of remembering and the practice of telling. On the show, we share stories of hope, looking backward at the work of God in our ordinary lives. This show is for those who are low on hope, those who need to be reminded that God is with us, and those who have a story to tell. That means it's for all of us. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. I'm so glad you're here. Kristen, welcome to We Have This Hope. I'm so glad you're here. I just finished reading your book last night and I could not put it down. It was fantastic. No, no. <laughs> well, thanks. Truly, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Truly, I was finishing it on a Kindle. That's what I like to read on at night. And my husband was like turning off lights in the room around me. And I was like walking around, getting ready for bed, like finishing the last few pages. <laughs> Um, it's really beautiful. So I've Thank been you. looking forward to talking to you. I also feel a little bit like I know your voice because I have been listening to the audiobook version of it. So that's been kind of fun. You know, <laughs> that, the audiobook is, is a lot more polished than what you're going to get today, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. It's really, really beautiful. Um, what's it like to be on the edge of releasing creative work in the world? Like what's this week like? for you. Oh my goodness. It's really exciting. I've always wanted to write books. Like this is a childhood dream of mine. I thought I was going to be writing books about like magic and fairies and like fun children's books. So this is a little bit of a different path to write about trauma and faith and pain, <laughs> but it's really exciting. And it feels like, um, kind of like birthing a child, but it took two years instead of instead of nine months but I'm so proud of it I worked so hard on it and it's been such a long process and I was so like intense about every single detail of the book from like the font on the cover to the way the acknowledgments are laid out in the back so I'm really excited for people to get it and read it and tell me what they think because I haven't been able to get a lot of feedback yet because I've just been kind of sitting with it so I'm excited for people to read it. Yeah. And feedback can be fun. I feel like feedback gets a bad rack or it's intimidating, but like, it's good to get feedback, right? Yeah. You put a lot of effort into it. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as we talked about on We Have This Hope, our focus is on remembering and telling our story, remembering the work of God in our lives and then telling others about it. And because I've read chapter five of your book, I know we're aligned on this, that 
it's all over scripture, even all the way back to the Israelites when God's mm-hmm. saying, don't forget, don't forget, mm-hmm. don't forget, remember. And so when we, when I ask folks to join me on the podcast, it's so they can tell their story. It's super simple, but I've just found it to be beautiful and profound and encouraging and equipping for other people. So that's what I've asked you to do today on the podcast to tell a little bit of your story. And I think it will actually mirror the book because you kind of do mm-hmm. that. If any, for anyone that grabs your book, they're going to see a lot of really beautiful details about parts of your life. So to kick us off, I want to just start with really basic stuff. And that's to ask you, <laughs> Who are you and who do you do life with regularly? Like what are regular days like for Kristen and her people? Sure. Well, I am, I I know people are like, don't define yourself as a mother first. Who are you first? But that's like (laughs) the biggest part of my identity right now. It will always be, but right now I'm in the thick of that stage of my life and I have five kids. So it is all-consuming. They range from ages 13 to two. I have twin two-year-olds and we homeschool all of them. And my husband and I both work from home. So it's a very full, very busy life. I write for a living and my husband works for a nonprofit as a living for a living. So we just have really busy, chaotic lives and we love it. We love being parents and we love doing what we're doing right now. We're very aware that we're in the hardest season of our lives right now. And we know that our lives are not always going to be like this. So we're just kind of like, this is who we are right now. This is what we're doing right now, but it's great. We live in Massachusetts. This is my, um, my husband's hometown. I'm kind of just a transplant here, but we've lived here for, um, over eight years now. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. When do you write If you homeschool five Mm. kids and work full-time, when do you write? (laughs) In all of the margins. And my husband and I are constantly reworking our work schedules to be able to accommodate both of the things that we need to do. I really like writing in the morning. By the time one o'clock, two o'clock comes around, my brain is fried and I just want to like veg out for the rest of the day. So I'll wake up early and write or my husband will take the morning shift with the kids and I'll take the afternoon shift. But it's just kind of like a whenever we have the space and whenever I'm in a good mental space, I'll sit down and write as much as I can before I have to get to other things. Yeah, that's quite a juggle. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You're not from Massachusetts. So would you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what was your family like growing up? And yeah, tell us, tell me about your family growing up. Sure. My dad's a pastor. His dad's a pastor. My mom's dad was a pastor. All of their siblings are pastors or missionaries or worship leaders. So it was kind of this big, extensive ministerial family. My dad is what what people call a church revitalist. So he would go into churches that were on the edge of closing down or had gone through some kind of scandal and were falling apart. The structure was not great. And he would go in and reestablish them, bring some organization and some order to it. And then we'd go somewhere else. So I moved around a lot. I never lived more than three years in a row in the place. I never went to the same school more than two years in a row. So we kind of moved all over the country. And um, yeah, I have four siblings, big family. Everybody was in the same denomination for a little while. And then I was the first to leave the flock. And now some of the cousins and and siblings have left the flock (laughs) as well. But great big family and lots of lots of travel in my life. Yeah. 
Um, so growing up and moving around quite a bit and being in church world and ministry world and all of that, how do you think that impacted your view of yourself and your faith as a little girl? It shaped everything. It was my entire identity. And um, in a lot of ways, that was a negative thing because of the environment that I grew up in and um, the kind of belief of how girls should act and women should act. I never really what that was never natural for me to be like a naturally calm, naturally quiet, naturally submissive. I was very, I've always been very assertive. Now I know that I have ADHD and that was a lot of the trouble that I had being a good Christian girl as a kid and a teenager was related to that ADHD. Now I know so I can look back and go, oh, I wasn't just a dirty little sinner. I just had retention problems and things like that. So it was really hard to grow up in an environment that was so shame focused and behavior focused. And if you had any kind of like issue in your life, it was probably connected to sin or disobedience or not submitting to God fully or pride. There was always some kind of spiritual explanation for anything that you were experiencing. And so I learned to constantly search myself for something that's wrong with me so that I would stop hurting. And now knowing what I know with the maturity and growth and the things that I've learned about God, things that I've learned about myself, I can look back and go, oh, that was actually not it at all. And that was really harmful for me and made me truly, truly hate myself until until recently, until my 30s. I just wanted to be different. And my understanding of God was shaped by my self-hatred. Hmm. What was early adult life like? Did you study at college? What kind of jobs or work did you have? And what was going on for you during that season? Well, I went to college when I was 17, graduated. I was homeschooled, graduated early because I just wanted my independence. So I went to Bible college, which is where I met my husband. And we got engaged within a year. We were married within two and a half years. And then as soon as we graduated, we got married, became youth pastors. And much of my young adulthood was with him. Oh, pretty much all of it from 19. That's pretty much all of your <laughs> young adulthood. Yeah. And in full-time so. ministry. Yeah. So we just... We were little little youth pastors and worship pastors, and that's how we spent our 20s. Yeah, very cool. Um, you talk a little bit in your book about your experience in youth ministry, but maybe this is the early front end, but would this be kind of a natural time to talk about what was youth ministry like and what do you, what did you, what was good about it and what was hard about youth ministry? Oh my goodness. It was so much fun. I really loved being in youth ministry. I loved hanging out with teenagers every day. It wasn't something I knew even at the beginning that that wasn't something I wanted to do forever. It was just something that I was doing then. Cause I, I believe that God calls us to different things at different times in our lives. And I had that perspective, even going into it, like, this is what God has called me to right now. This is might not be what he's called me to forever. So I really enjoyed it while we were in it really up until the end when we ended up leaving the church that we were at, we had good, good youth pastoring experiences and bad ones, but even right up to the end, it wasn't the job itself. That, that was the heartbreak. It was the treatment that we experienced, but yeah, I loved, Mm -hmm. I loved youth ministry. It's a blast if you have the energy for it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way of saying it. It's a blast if you have the energy for it. Yeah. I admire folks that have longevity in youth ministry. It's hard Mm -hmm. to come by. 
for yes, sure. It is. Um, okay. What was hard about youth ministry other than just maybe knowing this is not what I want to do forever? Mm, I think just the, the hard things that teenagers would bring to you, the really mm-hmm. um, sometimes dark things and not really knowing what to do with that being young. And, you know, we were 20 years old the first time we were actually in charge of a youth group our frontal lobes weren't closed their frontal (laughs) lobes weren't closed like we're just like the blind leading the blind and there was always this tension of like when somebody when a kid brings you something really dark what do you do with that and you don't want to betray that trust and ruin the relationship but you also want to keep the kids safe so that was probably the hardest thing consistently was like knowing knowing when to say something and knowing when to keep something just between you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So while you were doing youth ministry, is that when you became a mom? Yeah. The first time? Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about that. What was, what was it like as a first time mom, a young mom, I'm assuming, and then doing yes. ministry? Yeah. I was 24 when I had my oldest and it was really hard, not necessarily re- related to youth ministry, but just because we didn't live near family and we were in a really small town it was in Western New York where the sun like never comes up. It was just gray, 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 gray all the time. So that combined with postpartum depression, that was really hard. Mm-hmm. But being in youth ministry as a mom was fun. We'd bring him with us all the time. He'd come to every event. He came to youth group every night. We Our house was right next to the youth center. We had The church had two buildings. Our house was connected, sort of connected to the youth center. So we would just have one of the parents of the teenagers sit with our son if it was like bedtime or something in our house. And then we'd go over into youth group and come home. And I don't know, it was just a really mm-hmm. sweet time of just the three of us. No, No bad memories there except just being lonely. Yeah. Yeah. I think you talk about in your book, is there, is there a part in your book where you talk about as a new mom, like you were struggling with postpartum depression, Mm -hmm. maybe didn't know that what it, that's what it was. Yes. And you were like living these really long days, Mm -hmm. sort of just being known as Zach's wife and, um, trying to find maybe your identity or maybe even not knowing how to ask for help with that. Well, tell me more about that. Yeah, that really came to a head after our third baby um, because mm-hmm. my identity had become so wrapped up in motherhood with our with our first son. I was still able to be independent. I had a job. He came to work with me, but I was working and I was very much my own person because that church knew me before I had become a mom. So to them, it wasn't, oh, there's a mom. It was, oh, there's Kristen and she has a kid now. So when we left that church and went to a different church, I had had two more kids and they only knew me as a mom. And that was really hard for me. They wouldn't say my name. I found out later that they had decided when they hired my husband because I had kids that they weren't going to ask me to do anything in the church because they thought it would be too overwhelming. They didn't communicate that to me at the time. I just felt like nobody wanted me and nobody saw me and they just saw my Mm -hmm. husband and oh, there's Zach. And that's his wife. I don't really know his name, which was true. There was people who, by the time we left, were like, what was your name again? (laughs) It's just Mm -hmm. really hard when you are uh, independent and you value your independence and your autonomy to have that wrapped up into this singular identity that you feel like you're not even that good at, which was how I felt at the time. So the, the postpartum depression, and then there was anxiety, then there was panic attacks and it just became my identity shifted from 
oh, there's there's the mama walking in with her three little ducks to, oh, there's the girl who has all the mental health issues and is in the hospital every week trying to get life-saving measures because she's convinced that she's dying, but she's not dying. She's having panic attack. So that just became my whole identity. And it was really, really, really miserable. And uh, my husband and I have been married 15 years now. And that period of the le- of of our lives was when our marriage was the worst. And I'm actually mm-hmm. still surprised when I look back, I'm like, I cannot believe that we made it out of that because that would have mm-hmm. been really not easy to walk away. But our marriage was such at the, at that point that I wanted to walk away because he just didn't understand what was going on with me. And I resented him and he was avoiding me. And it was just really, really, really bad. And then on top of that, you had three humans to care yeah. for in the middle yeah. of all that going on. When you talk about mental health, I first of all, Kristen, I think you do it really beautifully and authentically, and you model that for people, even now yeah. as you're sharing, but also in reading your book, just the way you talk about it with a sense of... Um, this is going to sound weird, with a sense of confidence, but that confidence mm-hmm. is a knowing that like I have... Um, this is something that I don't have to be ashamed of, that this is something that I've worked through or am working through and God loves me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I want to ask you, what was your family's background and maybe even your husband's like background with mental health? What was the approach to mental health before you experienced all this? There was no background in mental health and there was no language for it. I think my family didn't really believe what was happening or understand what was happening until they saw it happen. They saw me have a panic attack in front of them. I have a brother who's an army medic and he just happened to be around one time when I had a panic attack and was able to help me through it without going to the hospital. And that was when everybody was kind of like, oh, this isn't just she's nervous or she's stressed or like one time my mom said she was trying to understand, but she was like, I think what your generation calls anxiety, my generation called stress. And I'm like, no, no, mom, there's stress, but that's not what this is. So, And that that's what made it so hard for us to be able to identify what was going on because we didn't grow up in environments that were um, – were understanding or empathetic or even knowledgeable in any capacity about this kind of stuff. It was actually a pastor friend who Zach had opened up to and said and told him what was going on because Zach had a lot of shame about what was going on with me. And he finally Mm -hmm. told this pastor friend about it. And he said, and what are you doing to help her? And Zach said, I'm just waiting for her to get through it. And the pastor stopped and he like he got in Zach's face a little bit and he said, you need to treat your wife like she's terminal because if you don't get her help, she will be. And he came home oh, with wow. a list of psychiatrists and therapists. And that was the moment where we were like, oh, this is bigger than we thought it was. And at that point, that's when we started getting help because someone gave us the language for it and said, this is a medical thing that's going on and you need to get your wife some help. Until then, we were just like doing the same thing our families were doing, which was kind of like, well, you could read a book or you could pray or whatever it is when really it was something that required professional help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's hard when you grow up in an environment where there's not a framework for that. Um, None. Yeah. I, I think... It seems that the the next generations are going to have a better framework for dealing with yeah. mental health. 
maybe we're Definitely. the last, <laughs> I don't know, people in their <laughs> like mid, mid thirties, maybe the last wave. I don't know. I hope so. So, Me too. um, when in the timeline of your life, where does this fall with, uh, leaving the church that your husband and, and you were serving at? This you're talking about the anxiety and depression, and yeah, all of yeah, that. that's kind of where we are in your story so far. Mothering so three kids was, that was at our last church. There was, um, the pastor that hired us retired, and then a new pastor came in. So, my mental health issues were really bad during the season that the first pastor was there. He left as he was leaving, I was kind of getting to a more functional place where I was ready to serve in the church, I was ready to move forward with my life. I had been in therapy for, I think a year at that point. Um, maybe not quite a year, but long enough where my therapist was like, okay, we got to start making some steps to add more things into your life now. And then the new pastor came in and that was about, about six months later is when we left the church. So all the same sort of quick season of life, but two very different church experiences in the same church during that season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was it like having to leave a church that you once loved? Brutal. It was brutal. It's out of all the things that I've walked through, out of all the traumas I've experienced, that one was the hardest to heal from. Mm. Still is. It still hurts. Mm. What gave you the courage to talk about it in your book? Because I'm assuming some of the Mm. folks, you know, that you still may have a connection to or a relationship with, or they at least know that you have a book coming out. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm kind of really careful in the way that I talk about what happened because um, part of it involved one of my kids. And I don't really talk about that because I don't really want that kid to ever think that it had anything to do with him because it didn't. Mm -hmm. It just was um, abusive people being abusive and that has nothing to do with him. So I'm really careful about how I talk about it and the details that I share mostly as a protective measure, but also because details don't really help in situations Mm. like that. It just kind of um, gives you something to talk about and and gives people the satisfaction of knowing the details. Mm. Um, Some people think, some people would interpret that as me protecting the people who betrayed us and hurt us, but that's not it at all. I actually don't care how the book affects them at all. Mm. Um, This has to do with just what I think is healthy for me and what I think is healthy for other people and what is good and wise to do. So I don't think there's anything in the book that anybody would be like, that's not what happened because that was my experience. Um, also, those are people, the the people that were involved in this are people that I have, as scripture said, done everything to live at peace. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. they are not at peace, that is not on me because I've done everything. And there are some people that were part of that, that apologized and we've talked about it and they understand that my story is my story and I'll never exploit someone or take advantage of somebody's mistakes to tell my own story. I try to be really respectful of people Mm -hmm. understanding that people are human. And sometimes people don't understand the way that their um, actions affect people. So I try to be gracious, but also I'm not going to um, pretend that something like that didn't affect me deeply. So anytime I talk about church stuff, I try to focus on how it affected me, how it affected my family, and not necessarily on what other people did. They can just live in their world where they think it happened one way, and that's fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And isn't that so 
similar to honestly how how Jesus lived and walked. There were I folks hope so. that there were many, many people who did not understand what he was doing or yeah. um or the way that his kingdom worked out in the world. And mm-hmm. so it's being true. misunderstood is sometimes I think a sign of wisdom. Hmm. So. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please do. I don't know the situation. That's just what I'm saying. <laughs> so. No. Um, no, I think it's really brave of you to tell that part of your story and to do so with consideration for people that are involved. And I liked the way that you talked about it of protecting your family story a little bit, but also being real and honest about your experience because you are not the only person who has experienced hurt in the context of the church and is still trying to untangle some of that and figure out how do I continue to love this body of believers that is Mm -hmm. also very broken. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Kristen, will you tell us the story of your girls, your twin daughters that you have? They're a big part of the story Mm -hmm. of walking through that traumatic pregnancy and um, their healing and your healing. So would you tell us the story of your daughters? Yeah. So if we're following the timeline, this is about three years after we left our church. So we healed and kind of like hunkered down for three years. And then we went on a road trip in an RV and we lived in our RV for a year. It just so happened to fall during the pandemic, like peak pandemic 2020. That was not planned. It was not intentional, but (laughs) we made the best of it because we were out of the house and we didn't have furniture and we were already in the RV. We were like, all right, guess we're doing this thing. Okay. Wait, I have a logistical question then. Did you sell... We're, like, did you have a home somewhere else or was the RV? We like, were leasing. This is now our re- Okay. Yeah. So gotcha. we had been leasing and then we ended our lease and the day we are supposed to be out of our house is when it was two weeks. Let's hunker down for two weeks and then everything will be back to normal. <laughs> it was not back to normal. Just kidding. It and wasn't two weeks. And then we had weeks. to be out of our house and then we only had the RV and it was too cold in Massachusetts and all the campgrounds were closed. Campgrounds were actually closed everywhere. There was nowhere to park at the beginning. So we drove to a friend's house in Florida and parked there for wow. a couple months, first couple months of the pandemic. Yeah, it was crazy. So it was while we were on the road that we found out we were pregnant and I was super, super sick, abnormally sick, just like, this is different. This is not, Mm -hmm. this is not normal. Um, Around 14, 13, 14 weeks, my cousin convinced me to go do a gender ultrasound. You know, those kind where you go and you sit in Mm -hmm. the room and they kind of show you what you're having. That's where we found out we had twins, which was um, such a gift because that was the only ultrasound my husband was able to to go to he didn't get to go to any of my appointments he didn't get to go to anything really and even facetiming him was hard because what hospital has good wi-fi none of ours Mm -hmm. did so even that was like hard for him to be involved in that but when i went to my mid-pregnancy scan where they do the anatomy scan they check hearts and stuff like that um that's where we found out that one of our babies was severely growth restricted and she, they shared one placenta. So identical twins with one placenta and she was not getting the same amount of nutrients to her body as the other babies. So their recommendation was that I abort her and sever her umbilical cord so that the other baby could continue to grow without having this, you know, sort of like a, 
suck, sucking all the nutrients away from the other baby. If you abort one baby, then the other baby will be fine. So we kind of said, well, that's not going to happen. We're not, that's not a decision that we're going to make. And we did everything that we could to ensure that they would have the best chance of surviving both of them. So that lasted, so I found out at 19 weeks that that was happening and they were born at 29 weeks up until mm-hmm. 26 weeks is when um, the abortion cutoff was in Massachusetts. And so for that amount of weeks, we had to make that decision sometimes three times a week because of how things like sometimes things would be good and sometimes things would be really bad. Sometimes I'd go in and they'd say everything we thought was wrong isn't wrong. And then a couple of days later, it would be we're going to have to deliver them on Monday. So it was this constant like what is going to happen every day? I don't know. And then I developed um, gestational hypertension, which is really common in twin pregnancies in general. It Mm -hmm. was just heightened with mine because we're already having placenta issues. So then I was hospitalized for two weeks and they ended up being delivered um, via emergency C-section because I got preeclampsia and was quickly declining. They just kind of like whisked me out and did the C-section and my husband barely got there in time. And then we spent two months in the NICU and they came home at um, gestationally. They were 34 weeks, little, little four, four pound babies. They came home, but they've been doing really well. They're thriving. They're almost three now, which is crazy, 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 crazy. So it was a really intense and multiple layers of, of trauma. That was a really shortened version of it. Yeah. That's the story of how they got here. That's amazing. Kristen, like first of all, yes, when you said that's a really shortened version, you're you do a really beautiful job in the book of sharing some of like the nuances of all of that. And as you're talking, I'm like, this is this is like grief trauma whiplash, which I guess really? is, you always have, you always have whiplash, I guess, if you go through any kind of trauma, but <laughs> like, I mean, just the roller coaster of emotions in a really short and intense yeah. period of time. Yeah. Uh, what I read last night was the part where you were telling some of the story. I'm not sure if it was the twin story or about, um, the church, but you said you have a, a friend that like paused after mm-hmm. you shared all of that. Like didn't say anything and like in filling the void, you're like, oh, but we're all good now mm-hmm. as we all do. Right. we try to like kind of yeah. clean up our own stories so that we, other people don't feel uncomfortable. And this friend was like, no, I just want to grieve with you for a minute. Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I, first of all, I want that friend. Um, mm-hmm. and then second of all, I want to, I want to take what she did and do it for other people. Um, yeah. So I'm going to do that for just a second to be like, that's a lot. And that's a lot to share, um, with the whole world. So what are some things that you know now that you never want to not know? Mm. That's a big question. I know it's a really good question because there's a lot, I think, I think we spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid pain and avoid suffering. And when it comes, we want to get through it as fast Mm -hmm. as we can because we don't like hurting. We don't like, we don't like the way it affects our lives. We don't like the way it makes us feel emotionally, physically. And so we want to get past it. And there are a lot of things that I only know because of how Mm -hmm. I've suffered. And I think the biggest one is compassion, just having empathy 
for people. I was not always a really empathetic person. My world was very black and white until we started to go through some really hard things. And that is a hard adjustment to go from having a black and white world to being like, oh, I actually don't know anything. And the world is a lot more complicated than I want it to be because I like when things make sense. I like when I can follow a pattern. I like a formula. And when you don't have that, it can be hard to interpret the world around you. But I would never give up what I have now, which is the ability to see people through their pain and to understand that the way people act and the way people are isn't always a simple thing that you can be like, oh, they're like this because of that. There's Mm -hmm. always something that's happening internally. And that's helped me to see the world. I think more as Jesus sees the world with, with a lot of colors, a lot of grace, a lot of nuance. Yeah. Where was God in all of that for you? Like not now, not, you know, now you're looking back on that with the beauty of hindsight, but in the thick of it, in those like 10 weeks, what was, Mm -hmm. how'd you interact with God during that time, if at all? Oh man, I did. And it was not in the way that I would think or I would have thought I would interact with him because I was so shut down in a way I had, I felt like I had to compartmentalize everything so that I could function and have a clear head and make these decisions that you can't make when you are emotional. And when you're scared, you can't, you can't decide if your baby lives or die, if if you're freaking out. And so I felt like I had to just stay really level-headed the whole time. And so my prayers were not emotional. Sometimes they were not even words. I just let my spirit do the praying for me. And sometimes I would just lay there and just think and just say, I just, I just need you to, to know what I'm feeling. I just need you to know what I want. Cause I can't talk. I can't even like, I can't even think pray right now. I just need to lay mm-hmm. here and let your presence be enough for me. So for, for during that time when I wasn't praying, I wasn't pacing in my room. I wasn't doing Jericho marches. I wasn't doing anything like <laughs> that I had been taught to pray. I was just letting my spirit pray for me, but I felt God in that. And I, and he showed up in really tangible ways for me. I talk about in the book, the different Ebenezer stones or the different times that he very Mm -hmm. clearly was providing. He was very clearly giving me hope and planting these little seeds of hope, even though I knew he wasn't promising me anything. Like I wasn't guaranteed anything, but he was letting me know that he was there and he was with me. But the biggest way I think God showed up for us and for me specifically was through other people and having Mm -hmm. other people pray for me when I couldn't pray and feed me when I couldn't eat and take care of my kids when I couldn't really mother them and all these little things that I didn't even, I still don't even remember, but that other people have told me happened. I'm like, you did, you went and stayed with my brother for five days. Where was I? Like, I don't have any memory of that because trauma just kind of stamps it Mm -hmm. out of you sometimes. So God showed up in really practical ways and through his people. And it was really, really beautiful at the time and to reflect on. Yeah. I love that you mentioned, yeah, your community because that resonates with me and my own story. And honestly, when I think of my own Ebenezer's, um, looking back on my life, I, the anchor points for me are how people loved me and cared for me when I was very broken. You know, when I kind of felt like this image of the like paralyzed man being like laid his friends, like tearing the roof open and lowering him down to Mm -hmm. Jesus. Like that is just an image I'll always have in my mind. Um, this is a 
one of the quotes from the book that I love, you said, our stones of remembrance, you're talking about Ebenezer's, our stones of remembrance show us that we don't have to be strong because he is. Mm -hmm. We don't have to have all the answers because he does. We don't need to know how it all turns out because he's with us. Mm. What was your hope like at the time? Oh, man, there was... um... Did you ever question, did you ever question God? Did you ever wonder if like, is this even real? Yeah, I I feel like I was living, I was disassociated a little bit through a lot of it. Um, Other people carried my hope for me because I couldn't really Mm -hmm. feel anything. I couldn't look, I couldn't look far enough in the future to feel that hope completely and that that specific trauma that we walked through was so different than the other traumas that I walked through. Where I felt angry at God. I felt like he wasn't there. I felt like I was living in a vacuum and there was nothing in the air but my anger and my sadness and feeling abandoned. Like God just didn't feel like he was anywhere. And then during this season, it felt like he was holding me the whole time and that I didn't need to do anything. I didn't need to prove my faith. I didn't need to expose my faith. I didn't need to pray bravely. I didn't need to have hope because he was carrying that for me and other people were carrying that for me. So I just lived literally moment to moment to moment. And just if there was hope, it was that we would get to the end of the day with nothing else happening. (laughs) Mm-hmm. When people ask you what God did in the life of your twins, how do you answer mm-hmm. that? Do you, you use the word mm-hmm. healing in your book, but, mm-hmm. and you use the word miracle, but how do you answer that question now when people see your little girls running around and they know your story or when they first mm-hmm. learn of your story and yeah, you have these beautiful little girls running around. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, to put it into words because it's so surreal to me. Usually what people will say is, can you even believe that they're here. And the truth is I can't. And that was probably the hardest thing on my faith afterwards was that, why did Mm -hmm. we get this? Why were we chosen for our daughters to be healed when so many others aren't? I wrote in the book that most people who have all the factors that we have, their story doesn't end the same way that ours did. And I'm acutely aware of that every day. And that's a weight that I carry with me. And I think I always will. It's, it's a joy, but it's also a a burden in a way because I, I was so familiar with the Valley of the shadow of death and I lived so painfully in it, knowing how my story would, would likely end hoping that it wouldn't, but knowing that when you look at all the factors, that's probably what was going to happen. But when we got home from the hospital and then later on, we found out that um, the baby who was not supposed to survive, she also had water on her brain and and she had all these other issues going on neurologically. She was healed of all that as well. And that was the thing that I thought, well, this is the cost of the miracle is that she's alive, but she's going to have all these problems. It's it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like we were fully prepared to, to love and, and raise a medically complicated child and then that was also completely healed to the point where the neurologist was like, I don't know. I can't tell. I can't tell you there's no hydrocephalus present anymore. I can't explain this. Me either. So I guess the answer to that is that I can't really explain it except that God allowed it and he spared my daughter's lives. And I am forever grateful in a way that a book can't explain that my entire life 
won't be able to express. And part of that is because there's still so many questions in that miracle. Like, why? Why did it go mm. this way? If it was always going to end up okay, why did it have to hurt? Why did it end up okay? I, I don't know. I'm just mm-hmm. really grateful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that question. If it was going to always end up okay, why did it have to hurt? And man, that's part of the mystery, isn't it? <laughs> the like yeah, we're looking in is. the foggy mirror. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is a book by uh, an Anglican priest named Tish Harrison Warren. Mm-hmm. She's a fabulous author. Love her. Um, have you read Prayer in the Night? No. Before by her. Oh mm-hmm. man. Even if you add just that read to my the list. beginning, yes, add it to your list. But she has this really I'm gonna butcher it, but she has a section in her book where she's talking about the scene in Revelation where Jesus is going to like wipe away every mm-hmm. tear. And mm-hmm. you know how we hold on to that as like there's not gonna be any more tears when you know when Christ returns and makes all things new. But what she the way she paints it is so beautiful for anyone who's suffered, which really, you know, it's going to be all of us, but she says like, what if that scene is actually that before Christ renews all things, we're going to have one last really good cry Mm -hmm. and we're going to have a really good cry right with Jesus where he's going to wipe away every tear and be like, these tears all mattered. Mm -hmm. And she, again, her version of it in the book is so beautiful and eloquent um, and just, I think, paints God in this. Mm-hmm. The, I think that's the way to look at that passage is what I'll mm-hmm. say. That's how I'm always going to look at it is yeah. that that's going to be one last really good cry right before yeah. um, God makes everything wow, new again, beautiful. that our yeah. our pain matters. Yeah. So yeah. it's a natural segue into your book. It's called Even If He Doesn't. And when you talk about the twins in that part of your story, he did in terms mm-hmm. of like he brought healing to their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not yeah. true of every part of your story, having read it. But um, let's yeah. talk about that book and what was the tell us the origins of it. Mm-hmm. How are you getting to write it? What what's it like to be writing it? And um, mm. what do you hope for it? Good questions. Well, when I started the process of writing the proposal, I had kind of been the church hurt girl on Instagram for a while. I talked a lot about Mm -hmm. healing from church hurt and trying to help people understand the pain and the, the reason people who have been hurt by the church, why they act the way they act, why they say the things that they say, just trying to kind of bridge the gap between people who get it and people who don't. So when I started Mm -hmm. writing the proposal, that's kind of what we all thought I was going to write a book about. And then as we were putting the proposal together, I was like, you know what? I just don't want to write about one specific type of pain because it isn't mm. church hurt. Isn't the problem in it. That's not the problem that I'm addressing with my writing. What I'm addressing is what we do with our pain and how we engage with our pain and how other people engage with our pain and how that affects our lives and affects the way we view God, the way we view ourselves. So much of our identity is wrapped up into the way other people are responding to us and the way our pain makes us feel about God or, or uh, affects the way that we perceive God and who we perceive him to be. That's really what mm-hmm. I've always written about. Um, it was just kind of focused on church hurt for a little while. And so when we started writing the book, I was like, you know, I just feel like I want to write about pain and talk about the theology of suffering in a way that maybe people haven't heard it 
or Reddit talked about before without platitudes, without answers, without saying, oh, this is why a good God allows people to go through hard things. And this is how to avoid pain. And this is how to heal from it. It's just a book that bears witness to pain and doesn't try to rush you through it. I think that's a really important thing that a lot of people don't have anyone like like I write in the book about Job's friends who just sat with him for a week and cried with him before they, they said mm-hmm. dumb things, but before they said the dumb things, they just sat with him. And I think a lot of people don't have someone that'll just sit with them and say, this sucks. And I don't know why mm-hmm. this has happened to you, but I'm really sorry. So that's kind of what I was hoping, am hoping that the book will be for people. Just like sitting with a friend who's listening to you and isn't panicking about your pain or the doubts that arise through your pain. Mm, yeah, I think people are totally going to get that. I hope so. Um, totally. Yeah. Okay. This is a very simple question, but it's also like a huge one. Um, okay. I've started asking people because I've just love the way people answer it. How, how's the gospel changed your life? How has mm-hmm. hope in Jesus changed you over these years of following him? Wow, that is a big, a big, simple question. (laughs) I think that would be, I would have a different answer for different stages of my life. In the latest Mm. stage of my life, the gospel is the good news of Christ with me right now. Not just the promise that one day he's going to make everything okay. One day everything's going to be all right. One day there'll be no sense and one day there'll be no tears, but that he's with me right now and he understands me right now. Oh, I'm so glad I asked you that. (laughs) That was great. Oh, no, Kristen, that's beautiful. And that's, thank you. gosh, I don't know how to follow that up other than to say, yes, that's what I want people to hear that that is, that is what the gospel can be for them, Mm -hmm. that God is with us right now, that, um, that it's not just that we have to make grit our teeth and make it through to the very end, but right. God's kingdom is here now. It's breaking in. It's at work. Um, and he's with us and he cares for us. Thank you. Yeah. All right. What do you dream about when you think about your future work? Oh, wow. Um, I hope that I'm always writing books. I love writing mm-hmm. books. Um, I hope I continue to, write books that speak to the human experience in a really compassionate way. Mm, Yeah. What's your next book going to be about? Do we get to know that? (laughs) She wants the tea. Well, it's not confirmed yet. I haven't. Oh, okay. um, It's not confirmed, but I want to write a book about kind of how I went through all this trauma. Like this book is like all trauma and pain and suffering and theology. But what happened after that, which was wrestling with all of those things and how those things had affected me and how I healed and healed Mm. my self-hatred and learned how to cope with anxiety and depression and how so much of my mental health issues were wrapped into my identity and how I moved forward and healed. There's, there's 10 things that I did that really shaped my adult life. And I don't know if they're like, a lot of them might just be being in my thirties and you just like think about <laughs> things differently in your thirties, I feel like, but some of them are like active things that I, I chose to start doing to have a healthier, have a healthier life. Okay. As we wrap up, you get to pick your light or fun question. 
and I'm going to mix it up. I've been asking people like, what's something that made you laugh this week? So that's one option. Okay. Um, but I, I also want to know, do you cook? And if so, what are you making for dinner? <laughs> or so can, you know, give me some ideas. Um, what's a book or show that you are into right now? Mm. You can answer any of those. You get to let's pick. do let's do the laugh question. That'll require okay. less thinking on my part. <laughs> okay, okay. What's something that made you laugh this week? This is easy because I have kids, but this is actually actually this has to do with my husband. We watch Bluey. Do you watch Bluey? Uh yes, we watch. Bluey. Okay, all right. Whew. So we're Love we understand Bluey. each other. So there's one of the new episodes. <laughs> is about rusty and how he got really good at cricket have you watched that episode no i haven't watched that one. Oh my gosh well don't say i didn't warn you because it is like Ugh, it's so good cry? i cry oh my gosh i was okay until like the last scene but my husband is like a rusty diehard like he, he <laughs> says i'll take a bullet for rusty i love rusty <laughs> So we watch this episode, we cry, like whatever, we talk about it, like we bring it up in like therapy context and like it's just sure. such a good book. So this morning we're talking about triggers and I was like, I think that episode of Rusty would be really good to explain to people like you don't always know the experiences people are bringing into it because you don't know why Rusty is so good at cricket until you see all the flashbacks of his experiences mm-hmm. and his traumas that made him good at cricket. And I'm just like casually talking about it. And my husband slowly started bringing his coffee up to his mouth. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm like, are you going to start crying right now? And he just like started bawling. We just sat on the couch and laughed and laughed. And our kids were like, adults are so weird. I'm like, you'll yeah. get it when you're older. That's right. I mean, who are they making Bluey for? You know, us. that's the it's real. Yeah. I Okay, that episode I haven't watched. But in the new batch of episodes, I the one about rest where – the ma they go to the beach and the ma- it's called relax oh I'll double check yeah. and the yeah. mom is like come on come on we gotta like hurry up and relax we're gonna hurry up and relax and the kids are just like playing and then bandit's yep. like just go to the beach and she goes to the beach and can't relax and he's like asleep on the couch while the kids are playing i that that episode very much resonated with me i was mm-hmm. like well i feel exposed first of all all the time all the time that show makes me feel seen and exposed and challenged and sometimes Mm -hmm, it just makes me mm -hmm. cry and then we laugh because we're crying about a show about cartoon australian dogs but it's so good so all that to say we'll be linking bluey in the show notes along with (laughs) along with Kristen's book they go hand in Uh, hand that's right. That's right. Um, but I do want, I want to say this about your book. I'm going to bring it back around that. Um, okay. Your book, mm-hmm. even if he doesn't, the yes. tagline I love, it says what we believe about God when life doesn't make sense. And it comes out February 20th. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yep. Yay. If folks are listening to this now before February 20th, they can pre-order it. And when they do, they get the audio book, which is really lovely. Yeah. It's, it's your voice. It is. Um, and I walked around in my kitchen quite a bit this week with your voice in my ears while I was chopping vegetables Aww. and doing other things. So um, I totally recommend doing the pre-order so you can get the audiobook too. Or cool. just get both. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, just do both. Why not? If you're into that. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So um, Kristen, thank you for being on the show. I, like, I'm really excited to watch your book launch. And um, I think your work is really good and beautiful and yeah we're i'm cheering for you can't wait to see what else you got what else yeah comes out of you 
Thanks. Thank you.